Welcome to Season 2 of The Century Plan, a podcast designed to help you achieve better outcomes for your money. In Season 1, we delved into the science, history and philosophy behind financial planning. This season, we'll talk about the tools you can use to map out your financial journey from now to age 100. And we'll cover how to cope with unexpected changes. And we'll be talking with our guests about their own life experiences, which have led them to rethink their approach to planning. All this and more with Dennis Hall and Sarah Steele on The Century Plan. Very happy to be joined on episode three by Abraham Okusanya. He's founder and CEO of fintech company Timeline, which produces research used by forward-thinking financial planners. Like us. <laughs> and low-cost discretionary uh, portfolios. <laughs> uh, Abraham is host of podcasts, The Investing Show and Retirementals, and he's author of the book Beyond the 4% Rule, The Science of Retirement Portfolios That Last a Lifetime, all of which is very relevant to our discussions. Um, Abraham and Dennis first met when Dennis was chair of the London Institute of Financial Planning and the rest, as they say, is history. Abraham, welcome to the Century Plan. Sarah, Sarah thank you for having me. I think what you're trying to say is that I'm a, I'm a jack of many trades, master of none. Not at all. <laughs> Although I did read Certified Feather Ruffler on your Twitter page, which I, I absolutely love. And so you can say more about that. Um, I'm going to hand you over to Dennis now. Um, I'll just be floating around in the background just to check you two don't get too technical. Oh, good. Well, uh, Abraham, welcome. We, we, we meet from time to time in London um, at, at various events that are put on, including those put on by yourself. But we have a history going back quite a long time um, we- to, oh, yeah, the early part of this, of this millennia, I suppose, millennium. Um, when you used to attend the Institute of Financial Planning meetings um, as, a, as a young and enthusiastic researcher, I guess would be your title. Um, Indeed, yes. And, you know, Dennis, I, I know I've said this a, a, a many times before. You've been instrumental in, in my growth and in my career because you you wouldn't know this, but when I walked into the Institute of Financial Planning, I mean, what sounded like, um, you know, 12, maybe uh, 13 years ago, uh, it was a really low point in my career. You know, I was trying to get my head around what to do. And you were so kind and generous with your time as the chair, as the chair of the the, the London branch of the, the IFP, which was the biggest you know, biggest branch of the Institute of Financial Planning in, in the whole country. You know, you you were a big man. And no, you, know, no, you no, were no, so no. kind, so generous with your time and knowledge and, uh, you know, provided a lot of support and, and uh, mentorship. So I am incredibly grateful for, for that. And you did what no one else would have done at the time, which was a few years later, handed over the branch to me and Farida. You know, th- that was... Uh, you know, I- incredible. So, so thank you for your contribution to to the profession. Uh, I'm sure many people will, would have similar experience um, as mine. And uh, you know, thank you for for your contribution to my career as well. Well, well, I, well, I didn't know that, but you've gone on to carve <laughs> it out in your own way. Um, I mean, you are um, uh, you call it a feather ruffler, but you 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 make a ruckus. Um, I do recall inviting you to, uh, I was on an, um, another, I can't remember, another committee for sort of wealth management with the, with the CISI, Chartered Institute of Securities and Investments, and um, I asked you to come in and talk about then something about Beyond the 4% Rule, it's your book which I actually have on my desk, and in the audience was Theresa May's husband, she was Prime Minister at the time, and you weren't holding back about the, the mess that politicians make around pensions, um, with some fruity language. <laughs> um, yeah, but you have gone out there. You are not afraid to tell it as it is. Um, and I think you've made a real significant difference to, I suppose, advisors like me. And there's a, you know, there's a whole wide group of forward-thinking, progressive, challenging-the-norm type of advisors. And you're there providing a lot of the research and data behind the, behind the scenes. Um, and and helping test 
research and data that comes from other you know, academics around the globe around this tricky retirement question. So I wanted to talk about that today, if we could. Well, I've got, I've got three kind of subject areas. One is that 4% rule, or as you say, beyond the 4% rule. If we could talk a little bit about that. You've also done some research about rebalancing strategies of portfolios. What is an optimal rebalancing strategy? So we can talk a little bit about that. And then something that you and I, I think we agree on, but not everyone in your office does, it's the inclusion of factor tilts in portfolios. Um, I've been yes. speaking to, to, to Kate in your, on your office. She's just not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but there you go. We, it'd be nice to talk about those. So... Let's bore, let's bore our audience to death with these uh, technical topics then, shall we? <laughs> well, we'll we'll try and keep it... Uh, keep it to my level. Keep it, yeah, keep it at a nice, uh, uh, interesting level. So you wrote this book, Beyond the 4% Rule. Um, it's one of two books that I refer to quite a lot. Another one is Living Off Your Money by Michael McClung. And I know you've read that book as well. Yes. Very data heavy. And you start and you open your book about the way that, that the retirement landscape for people has really changed um, since pension freedoms or changes to pension rules. And I suppose the inevitable decline of final salary pension schemes. Um, and you talk about so in uh, one of the chapters in your book says um, what is safe? And I have an oh. issue with that word safe. So I'm just asking you what you know in that big, what do you mean by safe? Yes, very good question, Dennis. Thank you for, for the background. So the, the book, you know, the 4% uh, beyond the 4% rule book is my attempt to move the conversation about retirement and how much you can spend from your portfolio sustainably uh, away from, you know, this so-called rule, 4% rule. It's actually not a rule. Um, so, so the 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 reference to the to the uh, sa the, the the word safe uh, comes from the the phrase safe withdrawal rate, um, and this framework was created by a guy that you and I know called Bill Bengen. So, yes. Bill Bengen was a he trained at MIT, graduated from MIT as an aeronautical engineer. He was going to join the U.S. space program, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Bill wasn't accepted into this program. So he did the next best thing and became a financial advisor. He became a financial planner. And in the 1970s, uh, early 1970s, um, Bill had a lot of people um, in, in the financial, financial industry, saying something along the lines of, well, if you invest your portfolio in U.S. equities, the average real return on U.S. equities since 1928 uh, or 1925, depending on when you start it, uh, um, is about 8% a year in real terms. So after you adjust for inflation, uh, ignoring fees, uh, you, you get 8% return. And so people were saying something along the lines of, well, you can take 8% from your portfolio every single year when you're in retirement, and you would not only never run out of money, you will leave the capital, the initial capital, um, you know, uh, barely touched yeah. you know fairly untouched and bill being an engineer thought uh i don't think so this doesn't make sense so what bill did was he did what engineers do which is to test things and bill got a lot of data uh, he got something like 80 years of uh, data and he created this very simple portfolio that included uh, 50% U.S. government bonds and 50% U.S. Uh, stock markets. And so this is what we, you know, what you can call U.S. 50-50 portfolio. And he used something like 70 years of data, uh, quarterly data he used uh, going back 1929, I think. 
and it ran rolling period, rolling 30 year period. So he basically said, well, suppose you started your retirement in January of 1928 uh, or 29, and you had, let's say $100,000 in your portfolio, and uh, you know, and you got the return of this hypothetical 50-50 portfolio that he had created, how much can you safely withdraw as a percentage of your portfolio in the first year? Um, how much can you safely, you've used, I've used that word, safely withdraw from your portfolio every single year uh, without uh, you know, running out of money over, say, a 30-year period? So Iran multiple rolling periods. So this is known in the industry as stress testing. And basically what it came back with, it came, came down to is that you can withdraw 4% of your original portfolio. So if you had a portfolio of $100,000, you can withdraw $4,000. Then ignore that figure of 4% because the balance in the portfolio would change from year to year. But you can take that $4,000 and then adjust it in line with inflation, increase it in line with cost of living every year. So you maintain your cost, of, you know, your, your, your spending power. And he says, in the worst case scenario, your portfolio will last something like 33 years. And so he said, he, not me, I'm blaming yeah. him, said it's safe to spend 4% of your original portfolio, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and you wouldn't run out of money uh, over a 30-year period. So that's the origin of that research. Of course, as we do in financial services, people have taken this framework and basically bastardized it, you know, you know, like, you know, he used a very narrow portfolio. People extend this to apply to every single portfolio. Mm. You know, people, we disregard the fact that people's spending pattern changes uh, in their retirement. We disregard the fact that this, this research was conducted in the US. And so if you applied it to other countries, you don't care 4%. And so my attempt, I don't know, but my book is the attempt following pension freedom. So you remember... Uh, you know, the 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 great George Osborne, uh, some people will cringe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, if you put in the news again, then everyone's cringing. <laughs> yeah, it, it, indeed. Uh, you know, so he said he changed this country's pension, uh, you know, framework or, or set up with those few infamous words in parliament, no one has to buy an annuity. Yeah. And that mean that means that we we came into this world where uh, a lot of Bengen's research was useful as a starting point, but the work that I and others, you know, you contributed to to some of that debate uh, did was to try and take that framework. And, and apply it to UK environment using a lot of data. Uh, and my book is, you know, perhaps a, a failed attempt to move the conversation away from this, uh, you know, frankly, well, people I, I hesitate to say as unusable. A, uh, for, you know. as a rule rather than a, a guide. And we brought in a, um, uh, an, an intern from Exeter University a few years ago to try and see if we can replicate some of the work that you've done and um, uh, Michael McClung has done to see. Um, and doing that and changing the asset mix, that 50-50 mix, I think invariably leads to poor outcomes, especially if you're in the UK trying to take uh, a 4%. I'm going to go back. My issue with the word safe is that unless you're buying an annuity, there's nothing that is safe about a withdrawal rate. I, I know what we're trying to if we want to try and remove that because that gives a lot of people a, a false sense of security. Sustainable is something that I think that S should stand for. A sustainable withdrawal rate. What do we think that is? I don't know what you think about that swapping of the words there, but um, I, I cannot disagree with a word of that. I think, uh, yeah, the, the phrase sustainable is far more, um, you know, far more realistic it's far more appropriate is the word yeah it's far more appropriate uh, to describe what we're trying to do yeah so i was just touching there on that 50 50 portfolio i mean yes we have been rapidly trying to move i suppose this touches on something else is um 
when when financial regulation came in just around 30 years ago or so, nobody was doing um, attitude to risk questionnaires. And then all of a sudden, as a, as a really blunt tool to try and bring some accountability into how portfolios are being constructed, there were there were attitude to risk questionnaires and everyone, nearly everyone ended up balanced and they ended up in these 50-50 or 60-40 portfolios. When you look at the research and the and, and the tools that, that we use of yours, that time of research, it's a suboptimal mix. Yeah. 50-50, 60-40 is suboptimal. If you consider that people may have a 30, 35, 40-year retirement and an index-linked, they kind of want an index-linked um, withdrawal strategy, is that we find that something north of 80% in equities is going to give them a better outcome. So we don't like the idea. In fact, as, as a firm, we've stopped doing um, risk profiling with, with blunt volatility measure, uh, you know, trying to measure someone's attitude to volatility or, you know, how far up and down markets move. Um, and there is no real rule within the Financial Conduct Authority's handbook that says you have to conduct a risk profile questionnaire. But it's a really easy thing for big firms and banks to do to try and tick a particular box. My job isn't really here, uh, I don't think, to um, get a box ticked and say you're going to have a 50-50 portfolio. My job is to give people the right outcome, even if that makes them very slightly uncomfortable at the beginning. And in a way, that's a very poor segue into volatility, because I know you've got... Uh, uh, <laughs> you, you're not really a fan of of, of um, creating portfolios to manage volatility. You think that's a poor outcome. Um, uh, uh, indeed, I do. And and for a lot of the reasons, um, you know, why that, that you suggested. So these, these thing post um, the great financial crisis, you know, there was a lot of regulation um, and, 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 you know, the industry interpreted that to mean that we got to get people to, you know, you know, to complete questionnaires, you know, risk profiling questionnaires outside of the context of their goals, their objectives, and the fact that they are uh, working with, you know, a, a, a qualified, competent, compassionate, professional uh, financial planner. And you are absolutely right that, you know, essentially, whether the research that Bill Bengen originally did, or that I did, or that Michael did, that other people, my friend, Professor Whitfow in the US, uh, you know, Dr. David Blanchett, again, in the US, a lot of these people, you and I, uh, you know, we've held conferences, listened to these people, had conversations with them. What this research tells us unequivocally is that the more allocation you have to uh, equities, a diversified uh, portfolio of equities and ideally global equities, the higher the level of sustainable uh, withdrawal rate that you can draw from your portfolio, or the longer your portfolio lasts for any given withdrawal rate. So you are absolutely spot on and you're doing the right thing for your clients to encourage them uh, towards holding more equities. And that's why I don't like volatility, A, as a measure of risk. And, and a lot of the things that Bengen actually said in his original research, which strangely, this thing was published, um, you know, over 20, 25 years ago, I think, uh, you know, this research, well, I mean, way more than that, 1994, uh, Bill publishes original research. So my point is that you know, a, a lot of the things he was saying is that there are other risks for us to think about than just volatility, which is just a measure of how your portfolio uh, deviates away from, say, the average return. Uh, you know, his point, you know, and one that I made uh, perhaps poorly in my book is that the order of return is far more important, you know, or at least as important than volatility. There are other risks that people have to contend with, such as longevity risk, uh, you know, the risk of, you know, outliving your money, 
uh, that's a far more potent risk to, to think about. And then, of course, um, you know, as has as been proven to all of us, you know, the, the risk of cost of living, things are going up every year in this country. Average in inflation over the last 100 years is 4%. And you and I, you know, in, in various forum, you know, where I remember periods where inflation was, uh, you know, 2% or, you know, even, even, even lower. And in meetings with financial planners, I will be literally screaming and shouting and saying to people, let's all not get comfortable. I was saying to advisors, stress test your client portfolio for scenarios with high inflation, double digit inflation. We have records of that um, in this. And people will say, what are you talking about, Abraham? Get out of this room because um, you're talking to us about double digit inflation. The reality is that now, you know, uh, um, you know, people in retirement are facing that. And inflation is a very, very potent risk because once you've increased your withdrawal to fit a certain level of, um, you know, uh, living standards, it's very hard, um, you know, to then to then pull back from that. Not impossible, but most clients don't want to do that. So my point. Uh, is that I don't like, uh, you know, volatility as the measure of risk, especially in the context of, uh, you know, retirement planning, where there are other risks that people contend with. And when, especially when they're working with a competent financial planner uh, who can actually help them, you know, a lot, a lot of the response that we need to volatility is, is managing our, our emotions and apprehensions about, about it. So uh, that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, but I think you were just about to touch uh, at one point there, that the bigger risk that you found when you were measuring volatility was something you call sequencing risk. What yeah. happens in those first few years of retirement if the markets fall, if the actual value of your investments fall? And managing that period is far more important than trying to manage volatility of the portfolio itself. Um, Make it worse if the if if in the so in a thirty year retirement, in the first ten years. If you have the evil combination or evil twin, I call them, of a decline in portfolio or even just, uh, you know, mediocre returns and high inflation, if you have that in the first 10 years of, of retirement, um, you know, unless it's managed very, very carefully, um, <laughs> uh, there's a phrase that I, I typically use, but I, I won't, uh, you said no, no, uh, no, no explicit, uh, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> but, but, but my point is that yes, that first 10 years of retirement, what happens in that, in that first phase of retire first 10 years of retirement is, is, has a disproportional, a disproportional effect on the 30-year journey. It's far more important than what happens in the subsequent 20 years. Yeah, uh, uh, it's very important. I do think, though, that clients, well, certainly the people that, that I work with, in poor economic conditions, they naturally tighten their belt. They don't need me to tell them to do that. So they may not take the inflation-adjusted pay rise from their pension that year. Um, if you're on an automatic process, maybe you can't stop it. But if you take a dynamic approach to, to your retirement income, where you're sitting down with somebody at least annually to determine what you're going to do and how you're going to approach the economic conditions at the time, that's got to help. And I think if you have those honest conversations with people, they can see that. Because there are years when you may take um, double inflation pay rises in good years and you know, we'll we'll talk about that maybe a little later on about the guide the guide rails that that can sit around a good retirement strategy, but you also talk about in your book um, a bonkers strategy called uh, natural yield, and I yes. and I'm talking to somebody right now who is convinced that they want to um, shift a large part of their portfolio to high yield investments, and I'm doing everything I can to convince them otherwise. It is a bonkers strategy, not only your research, but my limited research is also telling me 
it's it's a it's a recipe to capital loss. It, it is indeed, and I think it originates from false thinking. Think about this as you know the the way someone described this. I'm going to describe it perhaps poorly. Is that look whether it's rainwater or or water from the the stream or the the you know water is water in your portfolio whether the return is um, coming from yield or dividends or it's coming from capital appreciation shouldn't matter at all. So, so you know, the, the decision by companies to pay dividends is a simple capital, uh, capital allocation decision that has nothing to do with your goal or your objective as an investor. Some of the best performing companies in the world uh, don't pay dividends, um, in including, you know, uh, you know, the, the one managed by the, the legendary Warren Buffett. They make their decisions uh, not to pay dividends. Some of the, you know, uh, you know, most successful tech companies in the world uh, tend to have very, very low dividend yield. And so this thinking that people have when they say, well, when we're in retirement, we're going to chase uh, dividend yield in our portfolio or, God forbid, bond yield in our portfolio, essentially sends you down the wrong route of investing in, um, you know, uh, companies who are paying dividends for reasons that may have nothing to do with your your goal and and objectives, and it's been shown, you know, with the data. I took the data, hundred years of UK equity market data, and I, sp sp you know, split the dividends out, and I said, well, what if you just draw? Uh, dividends from your portfolio and you don't touch the capital well the first thing it does is that in real terms your 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 spending actually actually you know fluctuates quite drastically remember you know in the early days of covid when one of the things that companies did was basically to alt dividend payments. Well, if you were in that environment where your portfolio is declined and those companies are alting dividend payments, you are going to be in, in, in potentially in, 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 a, in difficult uh, position to maintain your spending. So my point is that it's such a faulty way of thinking about retirement. It's not borne out. It's not supported by any evidence or any data that, that, that I have seen. Yeah, and you also there's huge variability depending on which year you retire. I think that came out from one of the charts in your book is that you, know, right. you, you retire in you know, 1980, 1981, 1982. The outcome from a dividend strategy is very different. It's, it's, <laughs> not, it's not reliable. Uh, yeah. the, the final thing I think on, on the 4% rule before we move to something like um, optimal rebalancing strategy is is the use of cash. And yeah. you've done some research to say, actually, you don't really need a cash pot. But then again, it's a real good comforter. Um, and that um, helping to balance the emotion. And I'm kind of with you on the latter. It really does help, I think, people sleep at night to know that they've got two or three years worth of, of retirement income in cash should uh, you know markets fall quite quite dramatically to be able to call on that although your research says that that's really not necessary thing to do yes i mean maybe i, I was geeking out overly on this on this matter but yeah the, the research suggests that you know if you're focusing on the you know financial outcome so to speak you know then the the less money you keep in cash the better. But I totally agree with you that it does give people peace of mind, help them sleep better at night. And so what I say to people is, in your example of a sort of 80-20 portfolio, what I will do will still be to keep 80% of my uh, portfolio in equities, 
and then to take the cash buffer from the remainder of the portfolio so that I may end up with, say, you know, 80% in equities, 10% in bond, and 10% in cash, you know. And what the research suggests is you get that comfort blanket that you're looking for, that, um, you know, improvement in your sleeperability, <laughs> ability to sleep well at night. <laughs> sleep is underrated, but it's an incredibly important part of, of quality of life. Yes, without without sacrificing too much uh, on the financial return. Uh, I, I'm, I bet Sarah's going to tell us we are getting too technical now. Uh, Sarah, are we? Are we... <laughs> I think that's all right. I quite like to know about how I can sleep better at night. So... <laughs> That's suiting me so far. <laughs> I, I just thought for just for a moment there, we had a really natural segue into rebalancing. The moment you started talking about 80% and 20% or 10% or here, we begin to talk about rebalancing strategies. And let's talk about optimal rebalancing strategy because it's an integral part of what you do now for the discretionary portfolios that you manage. You manage some of those for, for some of our clients too um, because... Actually, you can do it cheaper than we can. So you've done some research around rebalancing. We talk about rebalancing a lot with, with clients. Um, I find it a very expensive and complicated process to do in the retail space. It's probably a little mm. bit easier in the, in the institutional space. But you've done some research around when you should do it or what your methodology is around time-bound you know, should you do it quarterly, half yearly? Should you do it annually? Or whether you should do it when the when the portfolio has drifted from its, it, you know, its stated um, mix? Do you think you should just explain rebalancing? Because we keep coming up with these terms that we're comfortable with in the financial planning world. But as a listener who's not actually been in front of a financial planner at all, just, just explain yes. what you mean. It's a good point. Well, I'll let our guests do it because yeah. you know they can hear me every week, but yeah. not Abraham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so let let's call rebalancing resetting your portfolio, right? So it's essentially resetting your portfolio. Again, I'll use that example. Let's say you have that you know eighty twenty portfolio. Um, the the benefit you know the benefit of having that is you have equities in the portfolio and you have uh you know let's say bond uh, and maybe cash in the portfolio when equity zigs the general rule is that uh you know bonds zag uh you know bond will zag so now because these two things if we think of them that there, there are thousands and thousands of securities in the portfolio but if we just think of those two asset classes you know they perform differently and so if you don't reset the portfolio what naturally happens is that the proportion of the equities in your portfolio will rise so mm -hmm. let's say over a five or, or, or five year period depending on how equities perform you might end up with a 90-10 portfolio, with more of your portfolios in, in equities and far less in cash than you, oh, sorry, in bonds that you started. So the idea of rebalancing is to regularly look at the portfolio and reset it back to the original allocation that is, uh, you know, that is in line with your goals and, and objectives. That's simply what that is. So I'm going to throw now, something here because there is a there is a school of thought that says, well, if the equities are growing and you're you, you, essentially you're you're growing your way out of the problem, why rebalance at all? <laughs> yes, uh, again, the the question I will ask you. So as we're playing uh, the devil's advocate is. Why don't you just start with a hundred percent equity in the first place? You know, portfolio in the first place. So the, the, there is, you know, there is that um, all of the reasons that we, we've we've talked about, there is that, uh, you know, um, idea of having some sort of buffer in the portfolio. Uh, there is that idea of having um, some diversification in the portfolio, not just within the type of equities that you hold, but having a, a you know, 
a little bit of, of bonds in, in the portfolio, you know. So my point is that if someone starts with, even if you have a, even if you have a portfolio that is say 100% um, equities, you will still have the different types of equities in the portfolio. So you might have, let's say, uh, UK versus international. You might have, um, you know, value versus growth, which again, I don't want to get, you know, technical. Even if your portfolio is made up of 100% equity, you still need to have a process of resetting the portfolio back to the original allocation that you've de that you deem suitable for for meeting your your goal and objective let's make no bones about it often the 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 if financial return is the the only uh, goal then when it comes to equities and bonds um you know it makes sense not to rebalance uh, at all, right? If you're just worried, if the goal is to achieve the highest financial return possible, the reality is that there are other considerations, um, you know, that, that we are often having to, 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 to take into account. Yeah, I'm going to hold my hand up and say, my portfolio, my pension is 100% equities. Apart from so, so is mine. <laughs> But, but my but the day I retire, which may never happen because I just love right. this job, but the the day I retire that might change. I don't know what my emotional state would be, but right now I'm I'm, I'm taking all the evidence, and the evidence tells me I need to be 100% equities. And I do tell all my clients that that's what my my personal investment strategy is. But they have to go with something that they can live with. But I will try as much as I can to push that higher equity content for them. So let's get back to this original. If we are going to rebalance, time bound or drift? Yeah, so time bound. The, the, the question I ask people when you think about time bound rebalance, so the other the question is, should we do it based on um, annually, quarterly, um, you know, uh, biannually, monthly? <laughs> and the question I ask is, what's your portfolio got to do with the amount of time it takes the the sun to revolve around the earth or is it the earth revolving around the sun you know so this this natural thing that you know many of us do in financial plan you know in, in, in financial services is just basically we have people who rebalance the, their portfolio uh, especially in, in the discretionary world, discretionary investment management world, monthly, quarterly. I mean, what we saw, so again, we took that 100 years of data and we look at multiple rolling periods. So we say, let's look at, say, every 10-year period that you have since uh, 1900 um, using equities and bond returns. What happens if you rebalance periodically uh, you know, monthly, quarterly, you know, annually, which which one gives you the, the best return? And what we found is the more frequently you rebalance, the worse the, the outcome, right? So what you're doing is you are killing the momentum in your portfolio by just rebalancing quarterly, um, you know, annually isn't terrible, but it's not particularly optimal. And so we said, all right, what if we shift this debate and we don't rebalance based on the amount of time it takes the sun to, you know, to revolve around the earth or the earth around the sun? What if we rebalance based on the drift in your portfolio? So if we focused on what we're trying to do, which is to say, we do not want your portfolio to deviate too much from that original uh, allocation. So if we started with 80-20 portfolio, what we said was, well, at what point should we rebalance? So should we rebalance when that portfolio uh, becomes 75-25? So in a scenario where equities underperform and, you know, bond does better, you know, you will end up with a portfolio that has more bond allocation. And so we said, well, should, what point should we rebalance? Should we rebalance when the deviation is about 5% either way? 
or 10% either way or 20% either way. And when we did that research, where we landed was 10% is about the optimal place that A, achieves the, the best financial return and B, without the portfolio getting out of your comfort zone. So we took a lot of uh, wisdom from the work done by, uh, you know, one of the, used to be one of the best risk profiling tools out there, uh, Finametrica, where they test the point at which people become uneasy with mm -hmm. the deviation in their portfolio. And that 10% deviation seems to be the optimal place. So if you started with an 80-20 portfolio, then you will rebalance just before it gets to a 90-20 in a scenario where equity is outperforming or um, just before it gets to 70-30 in a scenario where bonds are outperforming. And so the idea is that you can keep the portfolio in line with uh, your your original goals and, and, and objectives. I can see we're pushing up against time for you. Are we all right for a few more minutes, Abraham? I am good for time. I love doing this. I, I, it's our oh, audience we should be asking if we if we <laughs> bought them to death. <laughs> well, we could keep you for we could keep you for another hour, but we won't. We won't. Um, I, I think part of that rebalancing costs are important. Costs are important yeah. everywhere in in financial planning and portfolio. Um, and I think what we've something that I used to be well aware of, and, and, and I don't know if you know the term lift shafting. Yeah. Um, in the days when there used to be very, you could see what the bid offer price was. You know, you yeah, see that on shares, but you don't see that on funds anymore. But actually, there can be a huge swing if you decide to buy and sell, depending on whether that fund is going to be priced at its true creation price, true offer price or whether you're oh. selling in a downward market and it shouldn't suddenly swung down to the true bid price or the, the point at which the fund is shrinking. You know, even in a, in a UK, there, there could be a 10% swing in the price. That's a loss that you've created that you wouldn't create if you just left stuff alone. Um, how important do you think that is? And does that factor at all in, in any rebalancing strategies that you look at? Absolutely, absolutely. So when you overlay costs on top of this uh, rebalancing thing, the frequency of rebalance uh, just the more often you rebalance means the more costs you you generate, you know, this bid offer spread thing, you know, becomes a, a, a really big problem. And that's why, you know, we use technology in, in doing this. So A, we move away from the periodic rebalancing and B, I suspect that the reason why many so-called discretionary fund managers can't do this is because they simply don't have the technology to, to do it. And so what, what we're able to do is basically to track, you know, each person's portfolio and against the model, right? And we can see when the portfolio drifts and we only ever want to touch this thing when um, you know, when it, only when it bridges the 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 um the parameters that we set, and so what you end up with is you end up with rebalancing less often. You know, generating less cost, and guess what? Guess what? Doing less as a as a you know not just us as as the managers of this portfolio. And just letting the technology, but, but also you as a financial planner, you end up doing less, you know, you end up generating less cost uh, and you, you end up um, improving uh, the, the overall return. And you let the technology do the heavy lifting in terms of tracking uh, and notifying you of, of when the right time is to, to rebalance. Can I just oh, say no, just what I'm hearing from this, because I'm just going to bring it back again to our listeners, is that don't meddle too much and, and keep it simple. Don't don't look too much at the detail. Um, let the technology do that for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, I've, I've just written a note on my piece of paper. Be technical. I've said. <laughs> 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 to, uh, to, and shoved it under Dennis's nose. Um, 
So, but no, I, I mean that that I'd say that's how I'd sum that up for the people that are listening. But it is counterintuitive. <laughs> it is, but if if everything you read in the in the weekend press about is, is money, is that you've got to be buying and selling and dabbling and changing and and it's I think in a way people are being taught that that doing more is good and actually less is more. Mm. It's that old adage. It applies to virtually everything. The less you do, the better the outcome. The, the real work in financial planning is done in that, you know, that first 12 to 18 months of working with a new client. If you've got a strategy that you've spent a lot of time on, then stick with it and let it work. Um, have we got time to talk about factor tilts, Abraham? You tell me I've got time. Have you? Yeah, <laughs> we've got time. I know you've got to go into a meeting uh, with, with your own team. Factor tilts, I've been brought up, you know, I suppose since I started um I suppose, listening to the research that was coming out of the, the dimensional team, you know, with the sort of um, Nobel Prize winning economists uh, talking about, I suppose, the, well, I say predictable, they're not predictable, but the, 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 the superior returns you can get from certain parts of the market, and they would call those factor, and they would tilt their portfolios. So I'm a believer, I believe you are too, but your team aren't 100% believers. Some of them just think that <laughs> they'll go for the, for the Bill Bogle vanguard. Just tracking and keep it that simple is the, is the winning formula. What's your take on all of that? Well, I, I so, so, so here's the thing. We call these things factors, but it's essentially about price, right? Essentially, what that research says is that if you pay for... For, for things that are cheaper, if you get a good bargain, we call them value companies. If you get a good bargain, uh, and this company are cheap for, for whatever, you know, for, for, for whatever, whatever reason. It might be that there is something temporarily going on with them. Um, it might be that the, the, the media just doesn't like them. It might be that they're just out of favor. But what the research says is that if you allocate more, to uh, companies that are cheaper relative to their uh, relative to their um, you know earnings, let's say, then they tend to perform better than the rest of the market. The 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 other part of that research also says if you invest in you know smaller companies. Now I'm not talking about you know you know um, you know tiny little companies down the road. I'm talking about companies with valuations of say more than a billion. Versus two so fifty you know, versus FTSE one hundred. Correct. You yeah. know something like that. The research across the world suggests that small companies outperform bigger companies in a long run. But the thing to bear in mind is that there are risks in the sense that they don't always do with 100% certainty. And so when we, again, look at this data, you know, what it tells us is that even when you look at 10-year periods, you know, in eight out of 10, every 10 scenarios, you know, smaller companies will outperform bigger companies over a 10-year period and cheaper companies will outperform more expensive uh, companies in 10 out of every, you know, sorry, in eight out of every 10 scenarios. But there are still scenarios, you know, two out of 10 when that doesn't play out. And so I am a fundamental believer in data. I hear on the side of probability, you know, I know that things aren't always guaranteed, but I would do, or I try to do things that are most likely to give the, the the best outcome and so that's where the you know that's why we have you know our core portfolios that are tilted my family's portfolio is tilted towards uh, cheaper companies and and um, and smaller companies i still hold the market but about 50 percent of the portfolio is is tilted towards the smaller and cheaper companies of course as good a debater I am, I've not been able to persuade everybody, even in my own company. <laughs> in my own pension, Abraham, I, I own two. I own I own the dimensional tilt, you know, the ones that, that demonstrate the factor, and I own also the Vanguard straight tracker, and I've been holding them for a, probably a decade or so to try and compare the two, and 
depending on when I look at it, one is outperforming the other, but they're pretty closely tied. And so I think that if it's not, if I'm not losing performance by holding the, the factors, I might as well there because if that, if, you know, and sometimes you can wait a long time in the wilderness for these factors to, to play out. And we just had a, a, a terrible period really since 2008 when we've had quantitative yeah. easing all the way through and then we've had COVID that actually markets have not performed as well. Maybe these factors haven't performed as they might have expected to, but then, but those funds are not doing me any harm right now. And yeah. there is that, that, that shift back to, to that profitability of smaller companies and, um, and value businesses, if that comes to the fore, then I'm poised to take advantage of that. And I wouldn't be in my normal trackers. Uh, I totally agree. Look, people who are smarter than uh, you and I both, you know, won Nobel Prize uh, in economics for this, you know, so Gene Farmer, uh, Professor Gene Farmer won Nobel Prize for, for, for his work on this. So, uh, look, I, I continue to believe that is the right thing for most people. There are others who disagree. I think in the end, as long as, you know, people aren't paying too much, you know, whether it's factor tilt or, you know, just holding the overall market, as long as you keep costs low, you do less in terms of activities um, and you, you know, maintain you know, a degree of composure when, you know, when the economy and the overall market uh, um, goes, uh, you know, in the, in the wrong direction. And ultimately, if it's aligned to your goals, your objective, what you're looking to accomplish for your family, uh, and you have somebody in your corner, a, a, a good, competent financial planner, you know, to guide you through all of these maze, I think you're going to be fine uh, uh, as an investor and, and 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 as a retiree. I think you've summed it up, Abraham, very nicely. I, we could go on for hours, but we'll end up repeating ourselves. And this is probably a really good time to um, call a halt. Sarah, what do you think? I think so. I think that was the perfect conclusion. Thanks very much, Abraham. Abraham, we'd love to get you on again, not next week, but but further on in, in you know in a, in a in a couple of seasons' time to see what else is what else you've been working on. I'd love to come back, Dennis and Sarah. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you.